morning. Good to be with you all this morning. We are once again moving through the book of Deuteronomy. We've shifted uh, just a little bit in terms of uh, exactly how we're going to move through the text. We are starting uh, into the law, the Ten Commandments, and we'll take each of those commandments. Um, each commandment may get a couple weeks, two or three weeks, depending on uh, uh, the, the, the material before us, but I probably won't touch on everything in the next 20 or plus chapters of Deuteronomy. Uh, so there'll be stuff that's left off the table. But we'll look at each commandment and kind of get at the heart of those commandments. Uh, so that's just to give you a heads up. Today we'll be looking at the first commandment, the greatest commandment, uh, that commandment uh, that says, you shall have no other gods uh, before me. Uh, so with that, let's, let's turn to the text. You can find it printed for you in your bulletins from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll be reading the first nine verses, Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 to 9. Hear God's word. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house When you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for your word, uh, and we acknowledge you as the one true and living God, and we come before you this day. Uh, to be fed, to understand and hear, uh, to know you, to grow in our love and affection of you, to obey you. Uh, So, Lord, work in our hearts, we ask, by your Spirit, and press onto them these words uh, from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It has been a Jewish custom dating all the way back to the period of the intertestamental period, that period between the Old and the New Testaments. Um, to wear what was called, uh, or what is still called, a tefillin, or a a phylactery. Um, uh, What is that? Those are two strange words. Um, They are boxes. A box on your forehead and a box on your arm, and those boxes contain little tiny scrolls that contain these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And even today... In the morning prayers, faithful Jewish men, particularly men, will wear these boxes on their foreheads and on their arms as they go through their prayers in the morning and in the evening. Um, I'm not going to call us to that practice. I I don't think that's what is called for here, but it does raise some questions. Uh, 
What is so significant about these words that people would in fact tie them, bind them onto their very bodies? And I think we need to think about that. Uh, this word here, the, the Hebrew word Shema, it's the word to hear. And the, these words, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, uh, it was, is and continues to be a significant aspect uh, of the Jewish religion. They will say this in those prayers as they have them tied to their bodies. They will say morning and evening, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echa. Those words, hear O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why? Why is this so important to the people of God, to the Israelites? And I think to us. It's important because it is a foundational truth, a foundational text. It sets before us the very grounds of true religion, and it calls us to a living and active faith. All the other commandments that we'll look at, all of them follow from this first commandment. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. There is no other it's foundational. And so as we, as we look at the text this morning, and as we think about it, I want to encourage us to heed the words. Hear, listen, take heed, meditate on, consider, think about. Make this a, 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 a goal to know what these words mean. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to consider that the Lord our God, the Lord our God, He is one. And in considering this, I don't want us to leave us in some abstract place out here thinking philosophically about the oneness of God or the the sort of monotheistic religion that we have. But I want us to think about it in terms of the active call to love this God. Because that's what the text tells us. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. Not just a little bit of love. With all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our strength. And we'll look at this in three parts, this great commandment. Uh, First, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Secondly, love begets love. We'll look at that. Love begets love. And then thirdly, how we love God as forgetful sinners. How we do it. (laughs) What does it look like? Loving God as forgetful sinners. So first, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 4 is the Shema. It is those words that I've repeated over and over again. It's a very short verse, uh, but it's a very rich verse. Uh, Tomes are written on this, and you could go back and look at all the writings, both Christian and Jewish, on this very text. Um, but it begins with these word, this word particularly, here. In fact, this becomes the title of this, this, this uh, command, here. And it's not the first time that we've encountered this verb, here. Actually, we've seen it over and over again. It's here, here, H-E-R-E, it is here. In the previous verse, the word here, to listen. Uh, you look at it in verse 3. Hear, therefore, O Israel. 
And then again, verse 4, hear, O Israel. And if we go back to the previous chapter, to chapter 5, it begins with those words as well. Hear, uh, O Israel. And again, in chapter 4, it begins by exhorting the people, listen, over and over again. And the implication of this hearing and listening isn't just simply that we might listen with some sort of cognitive recognition of what's being said, but the implication of hear, O Israel, is listen and do. When uh, uh, oftentimes, maybe I'll say sometimes, when our kids receive an instruction, we say something like, all right, Eliza, Owen, and Heather, listen up. Hear, hear what your mom and dad are saying. And we say that, and then we give them instructions. And then they go on, and we look, and things aren't done that we had asked them to do. And we look at them. Sometimes this happens. Not all the time, right? Sometimes it happens. And the thing isn't done, and we we follow up with, like, did you not hear me? Did it go in one ear and out the other? As a parent, have you ever said those words to your kid? Did it just kind of fly through? Because the assumption is that our words of instruction have the concept of not just hear, but do. And so it is the same in this text. The call is to hear uh, and do. But then this verse says something else most amazing. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, our God. Um, and this, this is maybe the, the, the most amazing part of this text. This is, of course, relational language, covenantal language. Uh, in the first verses, before you get to the Shema, you have this uh, sort of, you might call it preamble, or, or, or this sort of introductory statements regarding the commandments. And Moses says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord our God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it. And at first blush, it seems as if Moses is saying, okay, Israel, obey. That's the most important thing. Obey. Heed the commandments. Do the commandments. Hear the statutes and rules. But I want us to notice in this, these, this opening paragraph, this verses 1 to 3, Uh, all the relational aspects that are in the text. The relational parts in it. Moses is, of course, saying obey, but inferred, even in this first verse, in verse 1, is the call to obedience is grounded in the relationship. The Lord, your God, he's your God, and he's commanded these things to you. There's a There's a relational aspect, even in verse 1. And then the text goes on to highlight the promised blessings, doesn't it? Your obedience will be done in the land of Canaan, which the Lord is giving you, the land you are going over to possess. It's yours. You're going. I'm your God. I've provided this for you. You're going to live in this land. And it goes on, doesn't it? This this sort of certain promise and this emphasis on promise. He goes on to say these words in verse 3. Be careful to do this, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord God promised your fathers. Right? That was the promise that was given to Abraham is yours. It belongs to you. I am your God. 
You're my people. Hear, O Israel. You hear that even there in those words in verse 4. Hear, O Israel. What is Israel, the word? What does it mean? It's just a people. But the word actually, literally translated is people of God. Hear, O people of God, the Lord. What is that word, the Lord? It is the, the word Yahweh or the great I am, the one who makes covenant with you, the one who spoke with you out of the fire, the one who loves you, who bore you on eagle's wings. This God, the Lord, your God, Yahweh, the great I am. The one who provides for you, who chose you, who cares for you, who has redeemed you from Egypt. And this relational covenantal language that's embedded in this verse, the Shema, this fourth verse of chapter 6, Hero Israel, uh, is not just a call to listen, but it's a call to listen to the God who loved us, who cared for us. When we begin to think about our obedience to the commandments, We must always first put it into the context of a relationship that God makes us his own. He redeems us, then calls us to obedience within the context of a relationship. It's a really significant portion. But then this this Shema, this hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's that oneness thing? What's that all about? Uh, It may seem a little bit odd at first. How does oneness relate to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? It seems like a a bit strange way of putting it. Well, there are two aspects to the oneness of God. He is one, um, and that idea of of him being uh, the great monotheistic claim, that he's not multiple gods, he's complex, He's three in one. He's triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he is not at odds with himself. He is unified so that Jesus will say, I and the Father are one in the Gospel of John chapter 10. And he will pray in John chapter 17, uh, may you, he's calling out, may they, talking about the disciples, be one just as the Father and I are one. When we recite the great creeds, those Nicene Creed and the Apostolic, the Apostles' Creed, we're saying we believe in one God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and his only Son, our Lord. We believe in the Holy Spirit, this one God, this complex unity. There is, there is a sense in which it is never in conflict, but it is always one. Now, this was in contrast to the ancient Near East gods of the day. They were always in conflict. So you might put your hope and trust in Baal. You might put your trust in the fertility god. But that fertility god was also at war with the other gods. And maybe one god fights another god, even within that own sort of pantheon of gods that you worship. And there was uh, no unity. There was one god. But there's... Another aspect to this one God. Not only is he one in terms of his unity, but he is one 
God in terms of his relationship to his created order and particularly his relationship to his people. It's exclusively God alone, the living God. Uh, Later in this chapter, he will describe himself as a jealous God. Um, When you think about jealousy, we often think of it very negatively. Um, Being jealous of something isn't good. But we can also think about it positively. It's right for me to have a jealous love for my wife, right? Her and I share a love that no one ought to break into. It's, it's, It's unique. It's ours alone. And in that same sense, God is jealous because he's a God who loves and and cares for his people. And he wants that exclusive relationship. But he is not just exclusive in terms of his own people. He is exclusively God. There is no other. Now, granted, people make gods of all sorts of things. People make gods of the created order. People make gods of of the world around them. But there is only one true creator God who not only made all things, but who has showed his power and greatness and has redeemed a people for himself, Israel. He takes the people of Israel, and he goes and takes them out of Egypt. Well, who is Egypt? Egypt had the powerful Amun-Re, the the great god of Egypt, the powerful sun god. And he said, no, I'm going to darken the skies. You don't realize that I created the sun. Oh, and the river god, the the great alligator, the creation myth that comes out of Egypt. He says, you know what? I'm going to bring that water, and I'm going to make it into blood because I'm the creator god. These things are created. I am alone the creator god. As they go into the land of Canaan with all its fertility, he's saying, this is the land I have made that bears fruit. Not Baal, not the astronaut. God alone is the true and living God. And he is their God. And the implications for us are the same as they were for ancient Israel. There is only one true God, the triune God, the one who created all things, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, who not only made us, but who has redeemed us and made us His own. Jesus says in the Gospels, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Why did he say those, those sort of clear statements that he alone is the, is the way, the truth, and the life? He's saying, I alone am God. I am the, alone the one who creates, and I am the one, alone the one who redeems. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. This brings me to my second point, though. Love begets love. The commandment in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is put negatively. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. But here in Deuteronomy 6, it's, it's shifted around. It, 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 there's a negative and positive side to that, right? The, the negative side is, you shall have no other gods before me. But here the positive side is, I alone am God and you are to love me. That's the call. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And it's not just some tacit love, is it? 
It's not just lip service to God, but it's wholehearted, whole being love. The threefold command. Heart, soul, strength. The heart uh, in, in, uh, in the Hebrew was this sort of seat of the knowledge, affection, and will. It was the place of sort of understanding and, and life. It was, it was from there that everything proceeded for a person. What, what, where your heart is, <laughs> there you will go sort of thing. Uh, your inner thoughts and your will. Um, the soul of a person is, is their life, their literal life, their vitality, their being. And strength gets at all the resources and power at the disposal of a human being. And, and here, the writer, or the, Moses and the Lord are saying, the Lord through Moses is saying, all of you, from your affection and your mind and your will and your, your, your strength and your resources, your very life, your, your soul, all of it is toward me. Love me. Love me. Nothing is to be left on the table for the worship of anything else or anyone else. In other words, love isn't just a warm feeling. Love is active, cares for. Love self-sacrifices. It seeks to honor and magnify the other. Isn't, isn't this the picture of love that we get in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not self-seeking, etc. This is the call of the first commandment here. Love with every bit of your being. Your mind, your will, your affection, your strength, your life. With all of that, love God. What an impossible task. What, a, what an utterly impossible task. But here's, here's the good news. This is the stuff I want us to think about. Love begets love. The Lord our God calls us to love him. Remember, the Lord our God calls us to love him. The one who brought Israel out of Egypt, as it says, bore them on eagles' wings. That is, He loved them and protected them. He cared for them. He saved them. He redeemed them. He he carried them through the wilderness. He provided for all their needs. He protected them. He gave them manna from heaven and water from a rock. This Lord, the only true and living God who created the stars and the skies and the seas and everything in Him, this God is our God. He loves us. And isn't it most marvelously seen in in the cross? This God, our God, died for us. This God laid down His life for us. He served us. He showed us what service is. He loved us. We who fail to love Him. We, who chase after other gods. He loved us. 
What wondrous love is this, as I sang of one other time in this sermon series. Oh, my soul, oh, my soul, what wondrous love is this who caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? What wondrous love is this? In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, taking on of God's wrath for our sins. The commandment here to love is impossible in our own strength, but his love produces love in us. It's what it does. First John, as I just quoted it, quoted again in first John chapter five, the apostle says, by this, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In other words, John is saying, you love, you will love because God loves you and you will obey because God loves you. As we wonder at the love of God for us and as we consider Christ, this command to love no longer causes dread. As John says, it's no longer a burden for us, but it becomes an aim. It becomes a delight. It becomes a mission. It's born out of that gratefulness that we have for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life, that hope that the God who loves us, that, that love that he shed on the cross, all of that pours into our hearts. And then we say, all right, I don't know how. I know it's not my own strength, but I want to love this God. And the truth is, in this life, we don't ever have a perfect love. But as we are being transformed by the love of God... Our disposition turns, doesn't it? Love begets love. That's the movement. Love begets love. This brings me to my final point. We learn, or we're in the process of learning, to love God. It's a process. We, we are learning to love God as forgetful sinners. Verses 6 to 9. Uh, let me just read these again for you. Uh, verses 6 to 9 said, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as sign on your hand. And they shall be frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's so exhaustive what we should do with them, right? You should talk about them. You should put them on your hearts. You should talk about them with everyone you see, with your children, and, and you should impress them on them, and you should write them in the doorposts of your house, and you should even physically somehow bind them to you, at least as a, as, as a picture of what... We should be doing with the word of God. It's interesting, this word, this very first word that says uh, that 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In some ways, this is both a promise and a command. Later on in Jeremiah, after Israel goes through all of its trials, eventually is headed off to exile, Jeremiah prophesies this promise that the law would be written onto the hearts of God's people. It's a promise. Isn't that an encouragement to us to to know that, okay, this thing that we have an impossibility of doing, this thing that I can't do in my own strength, God is, is etching it into my heart that I would love him. Love begets love. But it's also a command. Write it on your hearts. What, is that, what does that mean? That means take the words of the commandments of God, the word of God, and impress it on your hearts. That means be diligent to, to read it, to study it, to imbibe it, to take it in, to let it rest in your heart, to understand it, to know God. You know, one of the, one of the challenges we face is that we are forgetful people. I can raise my hand and say, I am one of the most forgetful people you will ever meet. To my shame, for sure. Uh, uh, When I was a kid, whether it was my jacket, or it was my shoes, or it was my homework, or it was my head, I would forget it. Even today, I lose my keys, I lose my wallet, I forget things at church, I forget things at home. uh, You guys have probably all seen that at some level. I'm a forgetful person. I'm like the uncle in It's a Wonderful Life. Do you remember him? He had all the animals that would kind of crawl around him. But anyway, he would always put little strings on his fingers to remember things. And then he'd look at the string and forget what the string meant. That's me. And isn't it true of us in terms of love of God that we're forgetful people. Think of all the ways that things that come into our life, all the worries of life that that overwhelm us, the daily things, the things of work, the things of home, the things of school, the things of life that, that impress upon us and we forget God. In fact, that's what worry is. It's a forgetfulness of God that he is is the one who cares for us and takes care of us. All those concerns of life impose upon our hearts and upon our minds and we forget God. We forget to love God. We forget to trust God. But it's not just the worries of life, is it? It's also the comforts of life. We get comfortable in life, right? We enjoy all the good things of life. The things that he gives to us and we forget God. We forget to acknowledge him as the giver of all these good gifts. We forget to thank him. We're like little Jack Horner who sat in a corner eating his something pie. He stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? Isn't that how we all are? We forget God. Not just the worries of life, it's not just the blessings of life, but it's sin, isn't it, too? It's our sin. 
It's our rebellion against God. We want to forget God because we want to do the things we want to do and we want to push Him out of our mind. That guilty feeling, we want to get rid of that, but we want to, don't want to bring it to Him and seek forgiveness. We want to just push God out. Sin causes us to forget God. We are a forgetful people. And so what do we do? What do we do in that case? Well, this is the beauty of this text. It reminds us, okay, God knows that we're forgetful. And He knows that we're broken and that we, that we struggle and that, we, that, that our minds are constantly being bombarded. We live in an age where we cannot get away from information. It's, it's facing us everywhere we go. We are constantly being bombarded. And he's saying, the information that you need to be bombarded by, that's a very hard thing to say, is my truth, is my word, is my commandment. And not just in terms of what you ought to do, but in terms of who he is to us, the gospel. Remind yourself daily, Oh, Christ loved me. He died for me. He's called me to follow in his way. And not just when you rise, not just when you go to sleep, but as you walk along the way. And don't presume or assume that your kids are just you. Impress it on their hearts. Remind them. There is a... a, a reality that uh, I never learned, and that is creating habits. <laughs> I never learned habits. I wish I had. I gotta have habits. I would have remembered to keep my shoes tied. I remembered to do all the things to get ready for school in the morning. I would have remembered my homework. I would have, but I didn't have good habits. I was not good at creating habits. This word is calling us to create habits. I have the habit of talking about God. Do you, do you go home and like, just take Sunday afternoon? I know there's football games on and they're exciting and we want to go watch those and there's other things going on. Do you have a habit of, do you have a habit of asking your kids, okay, so what was Pastor Gray saying there about habits? <laughs> Whatever it is. Do you have a habit of, of, in the evening, getting on your knees with your family and praying? Is that a habit? Do you have a habit of, when you wake up in the morning, as you rush around and scramble to get out the door, do you have a habit of giving thanks to God? Calling out for His grace on that day that looms heavy. Do you have a habit of reminding even amidst all the do's and do's and do's that God loves you, that He cares for you, that He, that he shed His blood for you? Do you have a habit of reminding yourself of that and reminding your children? Do you have a habit of turning to His Word? Turning to Him in prayer. Not out of bare duty, but because He loves you. And he wants it with you. And he desires to be in communion with you. That's what the, the text is calling us to. And it reminds us that God who loves us, who cares for us, redeemed us, and enables us to love him 
has given us all the means necessary that we might love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. Not because we have it in ourselves, because he's given us his Holy Spirit. What a hope. So as we turn now to the Lord's Supper in a minute, don't forget these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God who loved us, who died for us, who is alone God, who alone saves us from our sin, and who gives us the strength and the spirit to love him in return. What a, what a glorious hope. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you not only love us, that you not only call us to love yourself, but that you give us all the means necessary to grow in love. Grow us in love, we ask. Strengthen us. Give us patterns of love, patterns of learning to love, growing in knowledge of you and trusting you. Help us to bind it onto ourselves as we walk through the day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.